We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink AG1 literally every day and I started to give them a try because I realized that in order to be the real champion of my life, I've got to take care of my body. It's truly an absolute non-negotiable. I drink AG1 in the morning before I start my day and it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body as a positive first action and habit of my day. Because I've realized that one small thing that I do is the quickest way that I can create lasting change in my life. I think about it like this, my choices, my actions, they matter. So I think of drinking AG1 as a choice. It's like a vote for the person that I want to become, someone who's balanced, vibrant, healthy, full of energy. And that's why I love AG1. It tastes so great and gives me everything that I need to feel my best. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need for your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash coachable. That's drinkag1.com slash coachable. Check them out today. What's up, Coachable family? Welcome back to the Coachable Podcast. I'm your host, Tori Gordon, and this is the place for getting game-changing advice so that you can up-level in the game of life. And today we are joined by the one and only Dr. Guadagnoli. And I'm so excited because we've been trying to have this podcast episode for months and months and months, but he's a fantastic guest with a long resume. So to get us started, who is this man? Okay, he's the Director of Learning and Performance and a professor in the Department of Neuroscience and Neurology at UNLV. He's a mental training coach who's worked with incredible elite and Olympic athletes all over the globe. He's worked with companies like Bose, Ford, General Motors, Motors Google, Panasonic. He's also lectured at Harvard University, MIT, UCLA, and USC, and he is a library full of knowledge and wisdom and embodied wisdom, not just mental information. He integrates that into his being. And that's what I love about him. He's so powerful. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode and see what we can learn today on the Coachable Podcast. Welcome, Dr. G. Thank to the you, show. Corey. Of course. I'm so glad we're here, right? <laughs> Finally. I know. Finally. It's been, it's been a while. You and I met 
was this year. I mean, maybe the mm-hmm. very beginning of the year. I mean, we're in December at this point. I can't remember how long it's been. But Brandon Collinsworth and James Silvis, who's been on this show, both are huge fans and friends of yours and have worked with you. Um, both people I obviously admire and respect and, and care a lot about. And both of them had told me uh, when I met them how much you've impacted their lives. Both of them have taken w- classes from you. I know Brandon's in his doctorate program mm-hmm. now, doing some really incredible things. And um, back when you and I met, I was had the opportunity to come down to UNLV and, and meet you and some of the staff and learn about what you guys are doing. And it was just an Im- immediate yes. I mean, I just, you speak my language in every sense of the word. And so it was, you know, a no brainer to have you on the show because you really are not just educating those who are going through the, the, the programs of neuroscience and neurology at UNLV, but you're also a coach and helping other people with human optimization and performance. And so that brings both of these worlds uh, that we talk about here on the show. And so I want to dive into all of what that encompasses in your work and, and what you're working on. Well, I appreciate the huge compliment that yeah. I speak your language. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was super easy when we very first uh, started talking, and even today, obviously. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I, um, I wish I had a master plan as to how I ended up where I ended up. Yeah. I didn't, but I'm incredibly grateful mm. that I get to do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. What's the f- your favorite thing about what you do? I love working with people who have the talent and desire to be their best. Mm-hmm. Um, probably shouldn't say this, but I don't like working with, it's really frustrating to work with people who don't have uh, the desire. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who have the talent, but people who don't have the desire who want somebody else to do the work. But I love working with people who will do the work. Yeah what I would call, hopefully, a lot of those people are, are very coachable. They're willing to be students. Exactly. I mean, that is that is what it is, right? They're coachable. And and one of the things that I find really interesting about that group of people, and like you, know, like you said, I've been fortunate to do this in the classroom, in the um, operating theater, or, or for you know uh, physicians and corporate folks and so forth. Um, they have <laughs> this really nice combination of open-minded, and stubborn at the same time, right? They're, they're stubborn enough that they're going to be very picky about who they get their information from, but they will absolutely walk through walls to get that information. Yeah. And, and that's really cool to see. Yeah. I, I mean, you say stubborn, I think like committed. <laughs> that's probably a better word. Maybe yeah, because yeah. I feel like in some ways I have that. It's like, if, if there's something I want to know, like, I'll go pretty great lengths to figure it out. And that was one of the things my dad and my parents were both educators. They were both professors at the university level. And they instilled in me very young that if, if I had a question or if I wanted to know something, they taught me how to find the answer. They didn't just give me the answer because they had, they could have and make it easy. And what they, they taught me was how do I source the answer for myself, whether that's within myself or going out and being resourceful and getting the information. Um, and maybe that's where we'll start is, is, you know, in terms of optimal performance and reaching your goals and, and having enormous success and, and understanding yourself. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of things there. Is what does, 
what role does self-trust and relationship to self in general have on your your level of success in whatever field that you are in? Yeah, it's, so I love this question because it is a much bigger role than most people think. So let me give you an example of this. Your situation, the way that your parents behaved with you, they could have behaved that exact same way with another child, same genetic makeup, same all of this, right? So you, same household, and that person responds completely different, hmm. right? That person could say, well, look, my parents didn't give me the answers. You know, they didn't help me. They didn't, do, but the, there's some it factor that people have that really achieve things that choose to look at everything as an opportunity instead of a barrier, mm -hmm. instead of a challenge, right? But a challenge, like I, I know just because of our conversations, I know when you have something that's in front of you, like that lights a fire for you, yeah. right? But some other people just turn their back and walk away. Right. And, and some of that is life skills, but a lot of that is internal. A lot of that is the makeup of the individual. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, you'll hear me preach this all the time. The nature-nurture, it used to be a debate. It's not a debate, right? It's an interaction. And the, I think really the best you can do is tune the nature. Okay, tell me more about that. How do we do that? Well, so uh, knowing where the buttons are for a person. And, uh, and, you know, there are some people that really thrive on being over-challenged. And there are some people that need to be a little bit under challenged where they have some more success to kind of build that, that. confidence. Right, yeah. exactly. And, uh, and I think that's really the art of teaching and coaching. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a science to it. You know, we've talked about the challenge point framework, which, you know, is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into it on this show. But, but there's an art to it too, really. Yeah. And, and I think... At least, you know, it's it's my belief that looking into someone's eyes and seeing how they react to how you challenge them gives you a really good clue as to where you should go. Yeah. Yeah. So is that kind of how you, when you're working with students, because everybody learns differently, right? Or you're working with an athlete or somebody in corporate and you're thinking about how's it, what's the best way to get through to this person? What's the best way to have, if I'm going to teach them something, have them learn it or, or absorb it or embody it? We say the eyes are the doorway to the soul. So you can learn a lot by looking at mm -hmm. the eyes. But it, is, there, is there a point in which you're like, okay, I'm going to take the, the science approach or the art approach to really getting through to someone? And how can we relate that back to our own personal lives? It's like, how can I use the information of what the other person is showing me or giving me to know how is the best way to connect with them ultimately? Yeah, well, I think that they give you a lot of that information if you pay attention to it. But the, the other piece to that is, I think that if you really pay attention, not in your head, right? You pay attention to what you're feeling from that person. They'll give you a lot of the information. There are times where like, I'll say something to someone. In fact, I'll, this just happened recently. Uh, well, actually this happened a while back, but it's got an addendum that I, that's recent. So there was a, a person I worked with. He was a golfer and he was, he was a sophomore at the time. He was a good player, um, but he was not playing well, right? You could tell he could play well. He just wasn't. And I told him one day, he did something, and I said, you know, you're, you're a joke. And it, that sounds super harsh, right? Uh, but I said, you're a joke. And he says, what do you mean? And I said, that's what you are to your teammates. 
and you know that you're trying to be a clown so they like you. And that's not who you are really. I don't know where that came from. Like that's harsh. Yeah. And and so he eventually got kicked off the team. Uh, in fact, shortly after that, he called me, I don't know, maybe a month ago. I hadn't talked to him for four or five years. And he had transferred to a different school. He became the player uh, of the of the year for the nation in his division. Wow. Um, then graduated, went to graduate school, and now he's helping other players to realize their potential. Hmm. And he called me to tell me that the day that I told him it was a joke was the most important day in his life. Wow. Which I thought was super cool that he reached out and did that, right? He could have just led his life and gone on. Right. But it was so cool that he did it. But that's the kind of a thing where something about that, that dissonance that was there, and, you know, you could break it down scientifically and all that, but the fact of the matter is that we know a lot more than we admit to ourselves that we know, and we'll just give in to, if we give in to that, all of a sudden that's where these things come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it speaks to identity, right, and how we view ourselves, and how we think we're viewed by other people and who we think we need to be. And we learn a lot of that in childhood, right? I, for me personally, I learned that I get praise and love and affirmation, acceptance when I do well at things. And so I somewhat was conditioned into a performer and an achiever. Um, but if we see ourselves as the joke or we see ourselves as the clown or that that's the role we need to play in order to fit in, a lot of times we'll do that out of need for pure survival. Mm-hmm. Right. But was he saying that, that, why was he saying that that personally was like the biggest change, like most impactful day of his life? Was it because his identity changed that day or? Yeah, exactly. Because, well, it started to change yeah. that day, right? Yeah. These things take some time, but, but your point is exactly right. I mean, we learn to, to deal with the world when we're very, very young. And, and usually that is, or not usually, that is a survival mechanism for most of us. And the problem is that we use that same tool, even though the world has changed for us as mm-hmm. an adult. And so it becomes maladaptive for us, right? We, we start to see the same problems that we create over and over and over again. It's because we're using, you know, a screwdriver to hammer something in, right? It's the wrong tool. It worked for us at one time in one circumstances, but not anymore. Right. And And, you know, for you, I know that you've done a lot of work with this, but to recognize that and to say, okay, that's a great tool in certain circumstances. It's not a great tool in these others. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the basic idea that what got you here may not get you there. Right. Yeah. And to be able to identify, but, but it takes courage to do that. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it takes willingness to start over or, Mm -hmm. or like step into uncertainty. Right. Because you're stepping away from the familiar and the known and what you've been used to being and, and conditioned, like a, your default programming. <laughs> so you're going against what feels quote unquote normal and stepping into a whole new realm of possibility. And that can go two ways for people. When you step into the unknown, you can think about all the potential good outcomes and all the potential negative mm-hmm. outcomes. And most people in my experience often focus on what if this goes wrong? <laughs> How is this going to go wrong? Right. Um, but it's also at that, that choice point is the only way to step into a whole new version of yourself too. And saying like, I'm, who do I want to be? 
how do I want to show up as? And how do I have to start to view my own self, like my own self-concept? How does that have to change? Because for the people that I work with, we can't, what I've come to realize is like, we can't outperform our own self-concept. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like if I think I'm a joke or if I think I'm bad at math, I'm going to continue to find evidence that tells me I'm bad at math. Exactly. It's called confirmation bias. Yes. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit and how yeah. we end up kind of reinforcing these things and how we can start to shift it? Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to take a step back because you brought up some really yep. uh, interesting points. One was around uh, the default mode network, which I think is really important. So, uh, you know, just in general, this is essentially... Uh, I think you can think of it as a habit center. It's our default. Like it's our default of where we, how we think about things, what, what biases we have, what fears we have, these types of things. And in that default mode network, which is a, a neural structure, neural network, is something that is established for most of us really, really early on. And so we start looking for things that support this default mode. And, and so we, one of the things about it is that default is also our comfort zone. And this will sound weird. I know it sounded weird to me when it popped in my brain originally, but comfort isn't always about being comfortable. A lot of times it's about familiar. Yes. Right. And so you can be in a crappy situation that's not comfortable at all, but it's familiar. And so you stay in it. So it's your homeostasis. Exactly. Yeah. Nice word. Love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, that's where we want to be all the time. Um, that's actually a great uh, way to describe it. Um, the other piece to that is something called loss aversion, which okay. you're speaking to as well, which I think is really cool. And, and in just a second, those two will collide with each other. So loss aversion one of the Nobel laureates, a guy named Daniel Kahneman, talked about this in regard to economics. And essentially what he said is that we as humans generally uh, feel the negative effects of loss four times greater than the positive effects of gain. Okay. And so when we look at a situation, our default, our human nature, is to immediately look at the negatives. Well, what if I leave this relationship? What if I uh, change my job? What if I, oh no, I couldn't do that, right? Because we all of a sudden start spinning up the negatives that are associated with it. Yeah. And, we're, and the thing about this story that I think is so fascinating is all of this has a really good reason, or at least it did have a really good reason. All of this is human nature. Right. It's all about survival but we don't live in that world anymore. Exactly. There's no saber-toothed yes. tiger coming <laughs> right. to kill us. That's right. Right. And yet we still default to it because that's where our genes from eons ago uh, were developed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this loss aversion, you're speaking to the realities of so many of us where we're, we're talking ourselves out of taking that next step. We're talking ourselves out of doing what we know maybe our intuition, our gut, our heart is telling us to do because we're afraid. And we wake up and we look at all the reasons why it might not work out or all the reasons why it's, you know, why it might not work. And I, I, I work with so many people that get so frustrated with that, myself included. Like, mm -hmm. why am I so fixated on what could go wrong when there's just as much possibility around what could go right? And you're speaking to, is, is loss aversion something that like we can reprogram or is that just part of being human? 
Well, so I, I need to say this. I'm not preaching here because I'm right there with yeah. you as far as loss aversion is concerned. I still have to try to do what I can to override. I mean, there is some legitimate loss aversion, right? There are some legitimate fears that we have, like, oh, let's not jump off of this cliff, right? But that's not most of it. I would say 99% of it, I'm just making up the number. It's not those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, should I raise my hand in class? right? <laughs> it's these yeah. things. Should I go up and ask that for that girl's number? Should exactly. I, right. It's those types of things. And, and there really isn't a downside to it. If you, if you think about it, right? Because you do it and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you learn something. Right. Okay. You win both ways, but we think about losing both ways, right? So to your point, so essentially what we, what we come down to is overriding human nature. You know, human nature is designed for survival and protection. It's not designed for greatness. So if we want something outside of just survival and protection, if we want to live a life outside of trying not to lose, then we need to do something about it. Yes. And and the only thing we can do about it really is setting our cognitive, you know, doing it from a very effortful cognitive way in the beginning, because we're rewarded for loss aversion. Mm. I mean, you think about this for just a second, like schools, right? Regular school. If a kid raises their hand and they get the answer wrong, they're punished for that. So true. Right? And so we're punished for this. We're, and we're in, but when we uh, try not to lose by not raising our hand, we're essentially rewarded because there's no negativity associated yes. with it. Yes. Like the that's crazy to think about. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's nuts. It's exactly backwards of where we should that be. Is, that is wild to think about. We're conditioning our kids to, to like fear failure instead of like fail forward and realizing that success comes from a series of failures and then yeah. adapting and learning how to get it right. You, you mentioned about uh, Brandon. Yeah. Who, you know, Brandon's brilliant guy. He's an absolutely wonderful human being. We had this conversation the other day. And he was telling me that he felt like he had done poorly on something, mm-hmm. right? Academically. Mm-hmm. This is one of our advising meetings. And I said, I'm so happy for you. And, and it, just for a second, the competitor in him was like, what the hell are you saying? And then he got it right away, right? Yeah, this is my greatest opportunity for growth, Yeah, right? He's in a relatively safe space, so why not? Mm-hmm. And, and the, of course, you know, he immediately embraced it. But, but saying that to a lot of people, like saying, I'm so happy you failed. Yeah. Right. They're like, F you. Mm -hmm. Or or somebody, you know, going through a breakup or divorce and someone saying, well, congratulations. (laughs) 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 But that could be the best thing Mm -hmm. that ever happened to you. Right. Potentially. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's a choice of how we fix our attention and the story and the narrative that we create. Right. And, and that's why I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about challenge and I want to talk about our problems or, and gratitude. So I run a weekly community call on Mondays. It's called the huddle. And, uh, it's where we huddle up and we talk about how do we, all of these things, right. From mindset shifts, a lot of it's some live coaching, like how, how do we start to remove the roadblocks that are in the way of helping us to create a life that feels as good as it looks. And what I had people this week start out was with gratitude. 
Um, because what I realized recently in some of my inner personal relationships, whether it's work or home or wherever, is how many of us try to get what we want or whether it's our needs met or whatever we want from someone else or from the world by talking about what's not working, right? Versus starting from a position of talking about what is Mm -hmm. and what we're grateful for. And it was just reminding me about how much our minds are prefixed on the negative, right? This negativity bias of like, what's all, what needs to be fixed? What needs to be changed? How can we do better? What's wrong with this situation? And the example I gave is if I were to go to my partner and I were to, yeah, I want something from my partner. Mm-hmm. And I say, tell him all the things that he's not doing well. <laughs> he immediately is defensive. Yeah. He's immediately like, whoa, you know what I mean? It, I'm way more likely to get my need or my desire met if I come and I tell him all the good things he's doing first and say, babe, I appreciate everything for us. This is, this is what I'm grateful for. This is what I'm grateful for. And then present the quote unquote problem. Um, And they were so, you know, it's so minimal, but many of them in that real short amount of time were able to say, oh my gosh, just in that, my perspective shifted around my problem or my issue. Like I've been really sick and now I'm like, oh, I'm going to position it as I'm really grateful for the body and the way care of me versus (laughs) it's not doing what I want it to. Yeah. Is, you know, back to this loss aversion thing, are we always going to be focusing on when we wake up in the morning, what's going wrong? Or is it like a conscious choice? We've got to consciously choose to focus on the good and put those glasses on to start to see, because to start to go from defense, what I call defense to offense, Mm -hmm. the playing not to lose, the playing small. I love that phrasing too. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think most of us are on our heels mm-hmm. all day long. Right. Reactive. And, and and it's exhausting and it is stressful and it starts to have some really negative consequences from a physiological perspective. Yeah. You know, just flooding our bodies with cortisol all day long. It's it just wears on us, mm-hmm. right? But so I love the I love that phrase. I also want to be in the huddle, by the way. Yeah. Um, Join it. Please. <laughs> that would be super cool. Um and and I think that it is something that you can train. I'll tell you, uh, I, I haven't taught for a while, but when I used to teach, we would go onto campus. So at one day, we're, we'd be talking about attention. We'd go onto campus uh, from the classroom and we'd stand, this at UNLV's campus, and uh, I would ask the, the students to, to just follow me in these directions. Close your eyes, please. I'm going to tell you when you open your eyes, I'm going to ask you to look for everything you can see that's yellow, everything. This includes shirts. This includes whatever you see that's yellow, but you're only going to have about 10 seconds. Go. They would do it, look around, spin around, look, look, look. And I'd say, okay, close your eyes. What did you see that was red? And everybody would just be silent. UNLV's campus is red, 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 red. And they would have no idea Mm -hmm. because they weren't looking for red, right? So we see what we look for. And, and it, in my mind, this isn't a philosophy. This is science, yeah. right? We, we actually have a part of our brain, the reticular activating system, that's specifically designed to sort of keep our eye open for things, eyes, ears, whatever, open for certain things. And you can imagine that this makes sense, again, from an evolutionary perspective, because if we're walking through a savanna 
we're going to keep our, our ears open for rustling. We're going to keep our eyes open for tails or whatever, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We just adapt that to now our modern world. And, and they couldn't see red because they were looking for yellow. yellow. Well, it's the exact same thing that if you are looking for negative, which is default, you're going to see negative. We, we, one of the things that we do that with uh, all kinds of performance, athletes, whatever, is we use this thing called good, better, how. It's a feedback method, super simple, really cool science behind it. And essentially what happens is it'd be like, for example, after we get done today, I could say, okay, Tori, what was good about the podcast today? And you'd say this list of things, right? Um, you've got amazing uh, uh, staff here. You've got an incredible uh, facility, on and on and on, right? What could be better? And and a lot of times people misinterpret that as what was bad. That's not the question. Uh, the question is what could be better and how are you going to make it better yep. going forward, right? That part of what was good is so difficult for some people in the beginning because what they want to say is what was wrong, Yeah. right? But the thing about it is once you play this game, so to speak, several times, you know, like if we did multiple podcasts and, and I knew you were going to ask me after every podcast, good, better, how, I'm going to start looking for good because I know Tori's going to ask me that mm-hmm. question, right? That's just retraining yourself, right? Away from the default. And so, yeah, absolutely you can do it. Good, better, how. Yeah. I love that framework. And that's easily applied to anything, anything we're doing. Anything. Yeah. I mean, and it's just this beautiful reframe. I say this all the time. I said it this week. It's it's. Wayne Dyer's quote about when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Yeah, it's beautiful yeah. And, and accurate. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Because all of a sudden you can see the possibility and the growth and the opportunity versus everything that's going wrong and all the reasons why you can't and all of your excuses and all of the things. And and that's a simple, a simple piece. Um, but I think it's a critical piece, it, it, you know, Simple doesn't always mean easy or simple doesn't always mean applied. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's essential in what I would call like halftime, the game of life, right? Defense is in in my world, what we talk, talk about, the initial piece of my work is is the hit. That's the trauma. That's the event that happened that you didn't see coming that has knocked you off your feet and you are like dizzy and, and thinking, how am I going to recover from this? whether it's a breakup, a divorce, you got laid off, someone hurt your feelings, whatever it is, right? And then what do we do in a game when we get hit? We typically we have that injury, but we don't in our society, whether it's an emotional injury, we aren't taught how to, uh, we don't, you know, mental health is now on the rise. Obviously, we're all talking about how we can support our mental health and emotional well-being. Many of us, we get hit and we just power through and keep going. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of, of mental, like an emotional rehab, and then looking at what we, I call our opponent, our opponent being not you, not my husband, not my, the government, not who's in office, not whatever. It's actually my own internal mm-hmm. belief system. The impo- opponent is all my limiting beliefs in this default mode network that's programmed to look at the negative, right? And how do we start to shift that and take responsibility for it? But then we get to halftime in that game where most people in my world, they start getting, you know, coming into my, my sphere. Cause they're at a choice point in their life where they're like, I am not where I want to be. There's like, we're down by 30, you know, at halftime. How are we going to turn this ship around? 
And that's when we then start including the habits and the practices of, of getting onto offense. But I think that halftime perspective, when coaches go into the locker room and they have to rally their team to get in the right mindset to go back out on the field and do what it takes, that's where so many people who are listening to the show are right now, right? Those are the people that are like, how am I going to turn this? Maybe it's not their entire life. Is this just one aspect of my life? And start to, in 2024, really make the shifts in the progress I want to make, moving down the goal line of, towards the goal line of life instead of just playing, playing back and waiting and reacting, yeah. right? So I think gratitude is, is one way we can shift that perspective. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink AG1 literally every day and I started to give them a try because I realized that in order to be the real champion of my life, I've got to take care of my body. It's truly an absolute non-negotiable. I drink AG1 in the morning before I start my day and it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body as a positive first action and habit of my day. Because I've realized that one small thing that I do is the quickest way that I can create lasting change in my life. I think about it like this, my choices, my actions, they matter. So I think of drinking AG1 as a choice. It's like a vote for the person that I wanna become, someone who's balanced, vibrant, healthy, full of energy. And that's why I love AG1. It tastes so great and gives me everything that I need to feel my best. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need for your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash coachable. That's drinkag1.com slash coachable. Check them out today. I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor of this week's episode, Camuso Design. Camuso is one of my all-time favorite brands because they are not just a jewelry brand. They are truly my hack for relieving anxiety and stress in my day-to-day life. And I'm about to tell you why. I wear their shift necklace. It is an absolutely beautiful stainless steel necklace It is designed in such a way to help you relieve stress and be more calm. And genuinely, that's exactly what it does. I wear this all the time because all I have to do is breathe. I, as you guys know, I'm a breathwork facilitator. I absolutely love the power of breath. And with the Camuso Design Shift Necklace, it is a simple, beautiful reminder that hangs around my neck to remind me to stop, slow down, breathe deeply, and allow my body to do the rest because we truly are our own medicine if we allow ourselves to be. So with this necklace, all I have to do is take a deep inhale through my nose and breathe out through this beautifully crafted necklace. I breathe into the necklace itself. And what it does is it naturally elongates my exhale, helping me to downregulate into my parasympathetic nervous system, feel calmer and clearer in just a few seconds. This is the best thing you can do for yourself is gift yourself the gift of calm with Camusa Design or a friend. I gave these away when I was at Burning Man on the playa and every single person that I gifted one to was so grateful and amazed. They have beautiful stains for women, men, and children. So this is one of the absolute like favorite things I have in staples in my closet, but also one of my very favorite wellness secrets that I'm no longer keeping secret. So make sure you guys go over to camusodesign.com slash coachable to get 15% off your order today. That is camusodesign.com 
K-O-M-U-S-O design.com slash coachable and receive 15% off your order. Now back to our episode. You know, because for most of us, our bad is not really that bad, right? And, and gratitude to me. Uh, so we, we were talking about this just before we started. Uh, I got some Martian mystery illness, you know, a month or so ago. And, uh, and it hit me out of nowhere. And, and one of the first thoughts that I had was, you know, I do a decent job, not a great job, but a decent job of taking care of my health. So, uh, my default was to be pissed off about this and, and I was missing my dad's birthday and, you know, all these things. But then I started thinking, okay, let me think through this. So how do I make this my advantage? you know, and th- let me do an inventory of my health practices. Well, I wasn't doing as good on some of the things that were easy, easy things to do. And I wouldn't have done that inventory if I didn't get sick. And, and, and then our last attempt to, for our podcast, of course, right after that, I got COVID. And so my first thought was, okay, apparently I didn't get it with mm-hmm. this first one. What else is going on? And there were a couple of other things that happened. And I realized in that one, there's this thing that, that I do with clients. It's called the performance pie. And it, it fractionates out life so that you can say, here's where I'm doing well. Here is basically a good, better how with all these different areas. Okay. But, it, but it organizes in a way that's digestible, right? Yep. Um, and the thing about it is, it's, about it is I was thinking, I, don't, I didn't do that for myself telling these other people to do it, but I didn't do it for myself. Right. And so then I sat down, I mean, I had some time on my hands. And so I sat down and did the performance by, and I'm like, I'm so grateful that I got sick so I could do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I wouldn't have stopped. Of course. And a lot of times it takes something yeah. to interrupt us yeah. for us to take inventory. And in my work, like in my work, I call it the, I have something called the upgrade to your reality roadmap. It's very similar, but it's, taking inventory of all these areas of our Mm -hmm. life. And it's like, where am I? What are the facts of my life today in these areas? Where do I want to be? And then we look at what's in the way. (laughs) What's in the way is, might be my belief systems about it. Might be the stories I'm telling, but it might just be my habits and rituals and the things I, you know, maybe I'm not doing the fundamentals of just getting in the sun and drinking my water and moving my body and doing some of those things. But it helps to sort of start to see, get it out of your head. Like I'm just stuck. And how do I actually see a roadmap for how I can create a better life for myself or solve this problem in a productive way? I'm, I'm taking notes here because I'm writing down all these things I want to learn from you oh. about that. Like that's the point of what's in my way, I think is so important mm-hmm. because it shines a light on it. Yes. And because, because intellectually, it usually seems like, like, why wouldn't you go on a walk, mm-hmm. right? Why wouldn't you drink your water in the morning? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you do this? It sounds simple, but there's something that's stopping you from doing it. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't say you. It's something that's stopping us and me from doing it mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I, I would be really interested to hear more about that too. Yeah, the what's in the way piece, I think, is like that's where you keep running up against the wall. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that is what you consider it's just such a challenge or it's such an obstacle that when you get, for those people who just give up, they're like, oh, I'm just not even going to try because this thing's in my way versus being able to see it. Maybe what's in your way is 
a skill set you need to learn because you want to get a promotion and you're like not making the money you want to make. And you're, I want to get a promotion. Well, in order to get promoted, maybe I need to put in 10 hours of, you know, uh, continued education credits or something, or, and that's what's in the way. Or maybe it's, um, you know, a personal identity, a way that I view myself, that I'm not good at this thing or that I'm not capable of it that is in the way. Because uh, it it can be very tangible and objective or it can be something that's more subconscious that you don't even recognize on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. is preventing you progress you want to make. But that's why I think teachers and coaches are so valuable because it gives you and creates space for you to actually do that analysis and see it for what it is. And it sheds a spotlight on it. And once you see it, you realize a lot of times like what you're up against isn't this big, you know, scary thing. It's actually something manageable that you can make real active everyday choices to, you know, attack. It's, re- it's really interesting because it makes sense. That, like that makes really good sense. Mm-hmm. And, and it goes back to, at least as I was listening to you, it made me go back to the, one of the very first questions you asked. And that was about essentially the identity that we develop as children. And, you know, so like, for example, I could, as I'm thinking about it, well, why don't I, there are some mornings where I don't go on a walk, Mm -hmm. right? Why don't I? Well, because I feel like I'll be late for work. And well, then why don't I get up just a few minutes early? Right. I mean, that's in my control. That's something I can do. Totally. And, and then, you know, you can untangle this and there are reasons for that. Right. Uh, so Tomorrow I'll dedicate my walk to you. Yeah, well, it's just a matter of, it's, a, it's another way we can get out of this victim mentality of yeah. like life's happening to me and I'm victim to my circumstance versus like I can be in control of the controllables. Yeah, yeah. What do I, and how can I empower myself to take action versus just thinking like I'm up against something that I can't make it, like I can't control and there's I can do for it, like to change it. Actually, there's a lot within your and taking responsibility for your choices is, is a big one. Um, you know, in your work, you talk so much about human potential, reaching our potential. I'm curious, what do you think are the biggest things that keep and prevent people from explore? I don't know if we ever, do you think we ever reach our full potential? No. Okay. I, I, I don't. Is that a so. myth that personal development tells you that's like how do, or, or coaches or online, whoever gurus are like, I'm going to help you reach your full potential. Is that even a reality? I don't think it is because I mean, if it is a reality, it's a reality for an infinitesimal portion Moment. of the society, mm. right? Because most of us have some form of a governor on our how much we'll push, you know, and 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 we also have uh, limitations, reality limitations. So say, for example, that you're a parent, you're going to dedicate time to your kids. That's going to take time away from you. You could do your best within that environment, but that may not be your best if you weren't in that environment, right? So I think there's a reality to it. But to your point about uh, taking control, right? It's what can I do? These are the rules of the game, right? What can I do to win within these rules? Mm -hmm. I think become really important. Uh, You know, the Man's Search for Meaning, the Viktor Frankl book, I think one of the greatest books ever written. This, the, one of the simplest quotes that he has in here, and I, I'll paraphrase it, but it says between a stimulus and a response, you get to choose, right? What you're going to do there. Mm-hmm. And that single thing is so important. You know, talk about having control. You get to choose. You know, I think about 
two scenarios. A, a guy, I was just talking to a professional golfer about this the other day, four foot putt to win a tournament. You either get to say, oh my God, I hope I don't miss the putt or how cool is this? I get to make four foot to win a tournament. That putt doesn't care about you at all, right? It's the same putt regardless of your attitude. Yep. So why not choose this attitude, yeah. right? And it's, it's like a stoplight. You come up to a stoplight and it's red. That's either, oh, this sucks. I have to stop at this. Or, hey, how cool is this to your gratitude point? I get to take a moment of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, light, for doing this for me. Yeah. Right? The light doesn't care. It's, it's you. You get to make the choice. You know, we get to make that choice. And I think that's really where it starts. It's something so fundamental, so, something so simple of this simple idea of making everything our advantage. Yes. So this takes me down a road I want to, to go with you around consciousness and conscious choice because I believe being a conscious being, the beautiful thing about being a human being is that we have choice right? The ability to make decisions, mm -hmm. not just about what we do, but how we think. And for me, when I think about um, that, I'm reminded of when um, my sister was diagnosed with leukemia. Right. And my dad, that day, we got the news, we got the diagnosis, sitting at breakfast, my mom and my sister are about to pack up their stuff and go to Birmingham to go to UAB to check into them. Mm -hmm. And we're devastated, of course. And what are we going to do? It's a game plan or like the family huddle, you know, checking in. What's the game plan? And my dad said something I'll never forget. And he said, okay, we have two choices, hope or despair. Mm. We are going to choose hope. And I didn't realize until then, I don't know if I'd had this awareness prior, maybe I had, but I remember that being the standout moment. I realized I had a choice mm -hmm. that I could actually decide how I was going to, we were going to view this, how I personally as a victim for me, why us, how for her or have a different story. Right. And that moment shifted things because I realized the power that I have to decide which perspective I want to have. And that's internally like, how am I going to view this? But also then, what are the choices that I make every single day? Mm -hmm. And I think it was Simon Sinek. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But he, he talks about how our choices, what if you viewed them as votes? Oh, it was, um, it wasn't Simon Sinek. It was uh, uh, Habits. Yeah. The, uh, was it uh, Tiny Habits or ha uh, the Atomic Habits? Atomic Habits. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yes, that's what it is, mm -hmm. is that your choices, if you think of them as votes for the person you want to become, yeah. who are you voting for? What, who, what are your, who are you, what are your, your choices voting for? The future you that you're. Yeah. Yeah. James Clear. Yeah. That, that's that, what it is. That's such a good book. Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it, I think, like, I just, I'm shaking my head at how amazing that is that in that moment, your dad was able to pull that together, mm. right? And, and I mean, he's right, but talk about default. Most people don't default that direction. Right. Um, so I think that's just amazing that yeah. he did that. I mean, that was the example that I kind of grew up with. It was like, what do you do when your back is against the wall? Mm -hmm. 
completely. And and Viktor Frankl has a beautiful example oh, yeah. of that. I mean, yeah. he's in out like going through the Holocaust, living through the Holocaust. And he's like, I'm going to choose my perspective on how yeah. I'm going to view this. Yeah. Right. And it's like, wow. Um, I don't have to live this beautiful, perfect life to only see positive things. It's actually people who've been through really challenging, sometimes tragic, traumatic things that choose to see the good despite the bad. It's the, the book, we talked about this uh, one time, the book that I'm working on right now, a lot of it is around the idea that uh, not only does some degree of discomfort and trauma and, and so forth um, not hurt you, but it's actually, there's a huge amount of science that suggests that it helps you. Hmm. Um, and now, Viktor Frankl's was an extreme, right? Of course. Uh, I don't know. I'm guessing maybe there are other people that had a similar attitude, but wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Seems like an outlier. But for most of us, you know, you know, thank God for the, the traumas that we had, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I'm not talking about extremes, right? I'm talking about trauma that's within a, uh, what is referred to in the book as the intelligence struggle, somewhere in that area that com common traumas that people have over time, you know, rejection or, um, you know, we fell down in front of somebody that we cared about and it was embarrassing and, and, it, and even things that are more severe than that. Mm -hmm. But the, in fact, the post-traumatic growth is one of the strongest growths that we can have. And most of the growth that we have in life, the significant growth in life comes from some form of trauma, some form of uh, discomfort and so forth. Um, it's just a matter of managing that. But the other thing about it is you could just as well make a decision that this sucks and this is an indictment of me and this is saying that I'm, I'm clumsy and that's why I fell or those kinds of things. Um, it's, that's a choice. Right. Well, and what you're bringing up is something I, I learned when I was going through my, my um, breathwork facilitator training, which was a trauma-informed mm -hmm. program. And they taught a lot about, we did a lot of extensive training on trauma and how to hold space for people and as they're processing and moving through trauma. One of the things that they had someone come in and say and te teach on, she said, trauma, one of the hallmarks of trauma, which is so interesting. One of the hallmarks of trauma is choicelessness. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. So it's like, I don't have a choice where I'm, what, what zip code I'm born into, what race I am, what religion, who my parents are. And I get into an esoteric conversation that's different, but I mean, if I'm poor, if I'm rich, if I'm disabled. And so there are a lot of things that are with, like not within our control, right? right? And for me in my personal journey, in my experience, part of healing from the things that have happened is recognizing my, the power and my ability to choose. No, I can't, I didn't choose that this thing happened to me, but I have a choice in how I deal with it and how I see it now. And that has been like the catalyst for so recognizing I do have a choice. Maybe I didn't have a choice that I'm put in this concentration camp right now, or that I live in a third world country right now, or that, that, that guy just broke my heart. <laughs> 
but I get to choose how I'm going to, what I'm going to do about it. And if I'm going to let that be the end of my story and let that define me. It's so there's so many things that pop in my head as you're saying it. One of them is that there's a protocol for dealing with trauma that, uh, was on a Huberman podcast. It wasn't his protocol, but he did a really nice job of explaining it. Um, that I think is is phenomenal. It's essentially writing about the trauma over four days. If you look this up, uh, it's a fairly simple protocol, mm-hmm. but I think it's worth doing. Okay. Um, the other one is what I think is both one of the more interesting and horrible studies that's ever been done. Um, so two dogs. They were in cages right next to each other. Same, same breed, same gender, same everything, right? So they normalized for that. And the, the bottom of the cages, kennels, were uh, electrified. So they could send electrical shock to the feet of the dogs, and it was really painful. Mm. And the only difference between the two kennels was one of them had this little pad, and when the dog would step on it, it would stop the shock for both dogs. So the shock started for both dogs and stopped for both dogs the same. And the only difference was that pad and the one. Mm. And so when the study was over, you know, 30 minutes of the shocking the dogs, which is why it's a horrible study, um, they opened the kennel doors and the dog that had the pad in, you know, sort of sniffed around for a little bit and then came out and was pretty good. I mean, and within five minutes or so was getting petted and everything was fine. The other one cowered in its uh and sort of peed all over. And when they pulled it out, because it wouldn't come out, it ran over the corner and so forth. And the original interpretation of this study was that the only difference between the two was the sense of control, right? They were both having the same physical pain. They were both having all that, but one of them had a sense of control. The other one didn't. And then the sort of revised interpretation of this is a phrase that, you know, now is kind of popularized, but it's learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so the lack of control taught the dog to be, feel helpless. And that's one of the sure signs of depression, just like you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. What does learned helplessness, how does that show up? Like, how can someone identify if that's something they're experiencing so that they can start to to reframe or start to find where are the areas of my life I do have control so that I can become more empowered? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a great question because most, most of us, most of us have a sense of learned helplessness, right, at some point. But, and most of us are unaware that we have this. And, and it's little things where we talk ourselves out of things. Because like, we think we are free, right? <clears throat> we think we live in a yeah. free country and that we're free, but like, these are the mental cages that we live in. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and so it's something simple like, uh, I really wish I could have that, but I don't want to ask for it, right? But you were talking about, you know, a, a partner before telling the partner what they're doing that you really like or don't like. Something as, as simple as, um, I would really like for you to rub my back. Mm-hmm. But, but somebody with learned helplessness talks themselves out of that, asking that question. Yeah. Right? It sounds really simple, but those kinds of things, what happens is you're not honoring yourself in that situation. And, and again, to be clear, I'm not preaching on this one because I do it too. Yeah. Um, probably more than, than I should. In mm-hmm. general, you know, where there are certain things that maybe I want and I don't ask for those or certain things that I want to do. I assume do. the answer will always be no. It's interesting. I don't even know. I think at some point as an adult, you don't even make that assumption anymore. You just don't want to deal with it. Yep. 
right? That is the essence of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. The other is fear of rejection. Of course. And so I think that in, and in a way, fear of rejection is better than learned helplessness, right? Because at least you'll give it a shot. Yeah. You have a reason to, to you know, be worried about but it. Not even trying. Yeah, but you're not even trying with learned helplessness. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we don't try, if we don't ask, the answer is definitely always going to be yeah, no <laughs> versus right. having yeah. the potential uh, for, for having someone who doesn't yeah. know. Yeah. And that takes a lot of courage, you know, because it's vulnerable. Well, that's a, I think that's a really interesting point because sometimes people will be like, for example, somebody could go up and, and ask a perfect stranger, hey, can I borrow $10 or can you move your car or something, something simple, right? Like that. Mm -hmm. But if that was a person that they were intimate with, you know, they're, no, I'm not going to ask because of whatever reason, right? I'm not going to because the vulnerability is different in those two situations. Yep. Yeah. And so I think you're exactly right about that. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask you about, because we're talking about creating conscious change mm -hmm. and that takes a lot of energy and we're doing a lot of things subconsciously every day. Most of our day is, is run by our subconscious mind by about 5%. Is that still correct? It's, you know, it's I mean, one of these numbers 5%. that, you know, they throw around a number like we only use 10% of our brain, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It, it varies widely. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but in general, I would say the number sort of hovers around 70% okay. is, un, is not conscious. It's unconscious. By the way, just, I want to say this real quick, because I heard this on one of the few things I disagree with on Joe Rogan. So he had some guy on, and I can't remember who it was. And he was talking about, it's either conscious or it's unconscious. Okay. That's not true. Okay. There are phases of consciousness, right? And the reason I say that is because there are things that, you know, it's like we're saying, well, it's either conscious or unconscious, but it's levels mm -hmm. of it, right? It's like more like a spectrum. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the huge majority of things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis is towards the end mm -hmm. of, we don't have it in our consciousness yep. at that time. Exactly. So right. choosing new, making new choices, mm -hmm. choosing a new perspective, choosing to look for the good, that's a conscious decision. Yeah. Now, I'm also interested in alternative ways of healing. Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we get under to the root cause of why some of so challenges, our patterns, our habits, our ways of being, which are subconscious. And how do we start to reprogram that? And for me, psychedelic medicine has been very therapeutic and mm -hmm. very helpful in accelerating some of that new neural wiring in my brain. And I know you're, a, you know, you've experimented with this personally and you're an advocate for it and open to the, obviously the therapeutic and benefits of it. Um, I'm curious your stand. Yeah. What is, what is your, your perspective on how we can start to rewire the subconscious and, and the role of psychedelics? Yeah. I mean, uh, to your point, I, I look at myself a little bit as an alchemist, as far as human performance is concerned. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly care where the information comes from as long as it's solid. Yeah. Right. The science is good. Truth the is true. Truth is truth. Right. That's exactly right. So, yeah. And I think that, that uh, psychedelics um, are a real a new frontier. They're not, it's not new. It's, it's, it's now a light has shined on it, a yeah. frontier for these things. And the thing that's really interesting to me, like I, I have sort of a duality about it. As a person who's experiencing it, I just experience as a person who looks at it from a science perspective, it's fascinating because 
you know, one of the things that it does is it takes that default mode network offline. And once it's offline, we can choose how we want to rewire things back together. Mm -hmm. And some of those things that are, you know, maladaptive for us now in our life, we can say, I'm not going to wire it that way again. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's super cool. That what, you know, we refer to as the integration period lasts anywhere from, I mean, the main part of it from like ketamine, for example, we're talking about a relatively small period, a couple of days, maybe to something like ayahuasca and obviously dosing makes a difference, but ayahuasca where it's a week, two weeks, something like that, mm -hmm. or years. Mm -hmm. and so, but the main part of it is relatively short. Yeah. And so, and the reason I say this is because if you have intention, I mean, I can't say this strongly enough, how important intention is. And I will also say, because of my experiences and, and helping others with this, whatever you think your intention is, it's probably two levels below that, right? It's two levels more foundational than that. And so, because most of our initial intentions that we think it is, those are cognitive intentions. Right. And we need to go down, down mm. to figure out. But, but anyway, the, the difference to me between Western medicine Western pharmaceuticals and plant medicine is Western medicine is dumb medicine and pharmaceutical and uh, plant medicine is smart medicine. Mm. I'm saying this as a person, not as anybody affiliated with medical school or anything like that. And here's what I mean by that. If you take a Western medicine pharmaceutical, uh, an antibiotic, uh, something like that, right? It goes to where it's supposed to go and that's it. Mm -hmm. Even if that wasn't the right target, mm -hmm. that's where it's going to go, mm -hmm. right? Plant medicine is completely different. It goes to where it needs to go. Yes. And it's it's far more intelligent. And I can I'll tell you if you, we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but now I will say this and believe it. It is more intelligent than us. Mm -hmm. It knows where it needs to go because in our case, we want to shut doors. And it says, no, no, we need to open that door to heal what's going on. That's been my experience. Yeah. 100%. Even uh, Dr. Sam Zan, who I was mentioning mm -hmm. to you before, uh, just was recently on this show and we were talking about the ketamine therapy that I've been doing with him because now we're, we're curating these um, first of its kind uh, ketamine therapeutic groups um, and running retreats and stuff here because it's legal and low barrier to entry and it's one of the best ways to help people with treatment resistant depression and all of this stuff. And what I found is even though I set an intention, right, the medicine brings up the unconscious memories or beliefs or yeah. whatever that need to bubble up to the surface. And it opens those doors mm -hmm. to the, the parts in my mind that have been previously closed or like I like locked that away and repressed that so deeply. I'm like, I'm never reentering that room ever again. But also, um, it's given me more access to myself mm -hmm. because of that. And I, I, I've never heard what you just said, the way you said it about smart and, and dumb medicine. But it, like, yeah, I mean, every other pharmaceutical drug, and I say drug because it's not medicine. I said, heard somebody else say, medicine is something you take what, it's, it's either preventative or it's curative. If it's, if you're refilling something on a continual basis, you're taking a drug, yeah. you know what I mean? And this other medicine, like I even, I did psilocybin once and I had a transformative experience. It's interesting the way you just 
rephrase that. Yeah, and I think, so, you know, one of the things about it that I think is really important and, and I think unfortunate is that some people are using it uh, recreationally. Of course. And, yeah. and, and, you know, anything has the potential to be abused, yeah. but it's no joke. I mean, it, it is something where, especially if you have tried to resolve things and, and improve in certain ways and you're not able to access those things because they're, they're tucked away mm -hmm. for protection, right? Mm -hmm. We go all the way back to childhood and these kinds of things, but they're tucked away from protection. You need help and, and, and plant medicine may be that help, right? There are other therapy types yeah. and so forth uh, as well, but um, it's one of the ones. And look, if you just look at the science behind it, the efficacy is enormous. Mm -hmm. For this, mm -hmm. which is probably one of the reasons why pharmaceutical companies are really upset about it. Yeah. Right now. Well, I was, it was just learning about, cause MDMA is on the cusp of getting uh -huh. legalized and Dr. Sam's clinic will be able to facilitate it for, for PTSD. But he was telling me, I think who's going to like own the right. rights to MDMA when it is legalized is like some of these big companies. Oh, it's, it's look, peptides are a really good example. Yeah. Peptides are naturally occurring substances, right? So like these plant medicines. And, and yet the pharmaceutical companies are trying to take them away because they don't make money off mm -hmm. of them, mm -hmm. right? And which is unfortunate. I mean, this is a whole yeah. political bandwagon we can get on. But, but anyway, to answer your question, I really think that what's happening now with, with psychedelics, and I, and I actually don't even really like the term per se, because I think that people have sort of this conceived notion around it. Yep. But uh, plant medicine, these types of things, I think that, that it, it can help so many people, but it has to be done in an intelligent way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the set and the setting, the dosage. Right, right, right. All of those things are yeah. critical in creating a trans. It's, yeah, and, and it is, I mean, this will sound super obvious, but it's such a powerful tool. Mm -hmm that you can't leave it to chance. Right. No, you want to direct it in right. a very intentional way. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I, every quote unquote bad trip or horror story I've ever heard has come out of, has been a byproduct of not having those elements, mm -hmm. environment, things. Yeah. What are you working on right now? That you're well, you know, I think probably two or three things, uh, the book that, that I was mentioning, mm -hmm. um, that is, it's a, a real passion for me. It's sort of my opus, you know, mm -hmm. if, uh, when that gets done, I'll, I'll feel really good about it and I'll feel good about it because I think that, and this is, this is a hard statement for me to make. I certainly could have made it a few years ago, but I feel like it's got things in there, information in there that can really help people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, it's difficult for me to say that, but I, I believe that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so not saying it, I think, does a disservice. Absolutely. So I think that that is one of the things that I'm working on. Uh, the Academy podcast that we talked about for UNLV, for School of Medicine, um, it's really cool. We have so many uh, good people working on that project mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. And, and I think the other thing really is uh, me you know, which is probably where I should have put my work in the first place. Mm. And because uh, I've got a lot of, of places where, you know, I can do better, I can be better. And if I do, then I get to contribute more. Mm. And so uh, that's one of the things right now. And, and I'm always a tinkerer about 
how can I be better? How can I do this? What, what tools can I use to be a better person and, and serve the world in yeah. a better way? Yeah. But I think you're a beautiful and inspiring example of what it means to be a lifetime learner. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people, maybe they have the misconception that we ever arrive or we complete, you know, we're fully complete or we reach that full potential. But if, if we did, what would we have to do? We would, we would be bored. You know what I mean? Um, so always, you know, learning and knowing ourselves in a deeper way so that we can be ourselves as our greatest contribution to the world is such a a beautiful example to set for people, uh, even as a, uh, you know, as faculty and professor and teacher and mentor and coach, like people can easily look at you and think you have it all figured out, but it's beautiful to hear that yeah, you're like, I'm still a work in progress too. I'll tell you also, I have a, I have a huge advantage and that is that I was such a horrible student when I was younger. Oh. I've got, you know, I didn't burn out early. So mm. yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. the game of life or the school of life is beautiful and, uh, you know, I think is our classroom where we get to learn these lessons about mm-hmm. ourselves and know ourselves more. Um, and I would love to welcome you back when the book is ready and done and have you come talk about it. Um, Cause I know uh, and believe too, that it will truly impact people. And what I love about your work is it, it resonates with me because it's all about how, how do we create internal tra- like transformation, mm-hmm. but it's from the inside out, right. not from the outside in. And how do we build lives that feel really good? They don't just look good, feel good. <laughs> and that to me is what success really. Yeah, I mean, I think, and it goes back to what you said. It's about, you know, the one thing we can control is us. And and that's really scary for some people, and it's really empowering for other people. Yeah. And I will say, to your point, I, I don't ever want the, the places where I contribute to be the show, right? I don't want it to be a show. Mm-hmm. I want it to be something where, you know, like what you do and, you know, talking about the huddle that you're doing with folks and and, you know, all the the tools that you provide people, there's something salient about that that is contribution. And and that's so, so important mm. that we use the tools and the gifts that we're given to contribute to ourselves and to other people. Yeah. I mean, all of what I do, the show, my entire business is a byproduct of the tools that I've accumulated for my own journey yeah. and for my own path. And when you experience and have an encounter with yourself, when you experience possibility and freedom in ways you haven't ever experienced before, whether it's through a meditation, a breathwork session, a psychedelic journey, working with a coach, having a therapy session, whatever it is, and you get that spark, you get that breakthrough, mm-hmm. you want to share. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you're, you, they say there's no more self-righteous than the newly converted. And when you experience it, you're like, how do I, who, who, who will listen to me? Who can I tell? And, um, what's beautiful is that contribution does make a difference. It does. And I think the, you know, sharing, it's this really interesting cycle, right? Because you learn it, you share it, and then you have to do it because if you don't, you're a hypocrite. Uh, Totally. Right. And and so it's it's such a good way to keep you honest about these. It is. I I can't ask you to do something I'm unwilling. Yeah. A hundred percent. Otherwise you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> so Dr. G, thank you for being here. Thank you for bringing your wisdom, your medicine, yourself, your presence, show. 
Um, we could have gotten into so many things today. So I feel like we'll just have to have a part two. To, I'd love it. I'd love it. Thank it you, going. Corey, for having me. Let people know where can they tune into your podcast? Uh, let's see. It. I should probably have this right off the top of my if head. If not, we can put it in the show notes and make it really easy. For people. Yeah, that'd be the great. Link. I'd, you know, email, I mean, sorry, uh, Instagram is Mark Guadagnoli, but you'd have to spell Guadagnoli. I will. Um, and, uh, and then the Academy uh, podcasts at School Medicine. Okay. The Academy podcast, you guys go tune in. Can you get kind of amazing guests and information and experts and similar in similar areas that we're talking about on here? They've got incredible guests as well. So until next week, you guys go be coachable, go apply something you learned today. I love you. We'll see you next week on the Coachable Podcast.